0: The NHL offseason is here. Welcome to Canucks Hour. It is the home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Dranz here. Of course, you can read Dranzer's work up at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come. With fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery, visit Avenue Machinery. Dot.ca. A very, very busy 24 hours in the world of uh, Vancouver hockey talk. Drancer, of course, the dust settled on the Stanley Cup. We had the big Hall of Fame announcement, which was, you know, headline news, obviously, around the hockey world, but in particular here in the city of Vancouver and amongst Canucks fans in general. Now, all of a sudden, we're just over a week away from the NHL draft. We've got a lot going on, a lot to get
1: into right now. You know, it's really important, I think, for us to just dwell for a moment on the magnitude of those three Hall of Fame selections, right? These are three guys. In two cases, they spent their entire career in Vancouver. In the other case, they spent their prime years, right? The meat of their hockey career in Vancouver. Prior to that, all the Canucks players who were in the Hall of Fame were like, Matt Sundin. (gasps) Yes, yes. They make cameos with the Canucks. Cameos. Oh, yeah. yeah. If that. If that, right? Cameos or they're actually remembered with legitimate ill will by the marketplace. Or it was Pavel Bray. Or Pavel He Burr. would be the other. He would be the comp. 100%. So, basically, the organization went from having one guy who's a Hall of Famer as a result of what he did in this city, quadruple to four. And, you know, it's amazing. Like, it's a reminder, too, of the standard... That this organization used to set, right? What this organization was a decade ago and, you know, 10 to 15 years ago when Luongo and the Twins were, were at their best. And, and for me, you know, that standard extends beyond the level of performance. It's not just that Luongo was the best or the second best, depending on how you rate Henrik Lundqvist. For me, he was the second best. Don't tell him I said it. <laughs> and the Sedin Twins, who, you know, were top five forwards throughout their NHL careers and, and had a peak where they were at the very, very top of the league, apex uh, players in this in the NHL. It's not just the, what they did on the ice, it's how they worked off of it, right? Like, Luongo, and I've seen this up close, he'd play the night before, and he'd be on the ice the next day, no matter what. Playing or not, he'd be on the ice the next day. Uh, I have memories of, you know, the team going to stay in Manhattan, and he'd stay in Newark to be closer to the rink because he wanted to skate in the morning, right? I mean... The level of focus was preternatural. And the Twins had it too. The Twins had this level of competitiveness, this level of stamina. You know, I think Mikhail Samuelson, who I know was a guest with Alfred and Bruff, like, I think he's the only guy who ever beat them in fitness testing. When happened once, just one time. I asked the Twins to confirm this story, by the way. uh, Or asked Henrik to confirm this story a few weeks ago. And he just said, that's probably true. Guy was a beast. (laughs) So... The seriousness with which these gentlemen took winning in Vancouver, their family orientation, who they are as individuals, just the highest character of people, the highest caliber of players deserving Hall of Famers, just a reminder of what it takes, how good you have to be to be at that level as an organization. And I think for me too, as we go into the off season, underscores the distance this club has to travel, right? I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, for this latest group of Canucks star players to represent this franchise in the city at, at that same level, right? And and that's not just on ice performance. That's also standing in there in terms of the media side. It's the community contributions, particularly for the Twins. Uh, Luongo too, by the way, a lot of it's sight unseen. I, I know there's no major donation it, it, like the Twins made, um, but that's a, an extreme rarity, right? The Twins level of generosity is hard to replicate. But a lot of things Luongo did in the city happened behind closed doors, the way he wanted it to, right, away from the cameras. That standard is what this organization needs to live up to now, and for me, more than anything, yesterday sort of reemphasized it. Um, as I've reflected on it overnight, right, having talked to Luongo, mm-hmm. having heard the twins speak today, you know, that's sort of what stands out to me: is is there's a bar here, a reminder of what this team and this franchise used to represent in this city. And that's the task for Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin. Like that's what lies ahead is behaving in every level, uh, like an organization intent on getting back to there, both in terms of your ambition, uh, your evaluation of character, the way you conduct yourself, carry yourself, who you hire. That's it. That's where this organization needs to get to now. And for me yesterday, more than anything, reminded me of that, and I hope it reminded all fans of that, too.
0: And the interesting thing is, especially because the three of them are going to be inducted together, it's obviously it's a celebration of each of them individually, right? That's That's ultimately what we're going to be focused on, because they all deserve it. They all had such incredible careers. They deserve that celebration. But... It also becomes, in part, a celebration of that era of Canucks hockey as well. And this is a dynamic, and I mentioned this a little bit um, just when I was introing the Sedins presser earlier on the station, but we saw this a little bit when the Sedins had their numbers retired at Rogers Arena as people, well.
1: People were, like, ready to yeah. embrace what 2011 meant again. Yeah. As it was like the scars had healed enough, anyway. There was enough scar tissue and you, for everyone you to embrace And you think back it.
0: to that week at Rogers Arena, and, you know, BX is there and has such an incredible turn on the mic at the, as the MC. And, you know, you hear from Burroughs, and you hear from AV, and you hear from Gillis, and you hear from all of the the central figures from that era talking about you what had it means. Linden back in the Linden, building. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you just... You get a sense of again with the little bit of distance and with the you know we're not we're not talking about it to rehash the old mem- the the painful memories we're talking about it to celebrate everything they accomplished and I I think it's it's very interesting how much it turns into okay yes we're talking about those three players but we're also focusing on incredible era and an incredible team and I'm personally just happy to see that I think the. As a fan base, there's the d- enough distance to really properly celebrate it right now. And I think this is going to be another example. And when they do go in, we're going to see a lot more of that same celebration happen.
1: Well, and, and hopefully the team figures out a way to celebrate it in building. Uh, you know, I was there for uh, Paul Korea. um Paul Korea's in Anaheim. Paul Korea's jersey retirement ceremony. But that occurred right after his Hall of Fame induction. And they had sort of him and because he went in with Solani, right? So there his teammates both going into the hall And they they did it up in a major way, retired Korea's number, and he slowly worked his way to, you know, representing the organization in various capacities again. uh, There's a real opportunity at hand for the club to, you know, host a Hall of Fame game night or what have you. Um, And for me anyway, no brainer, that should include hanging the number one from the rafters, but in some way honoring these three that'll be a special night at rogers arena at some point this season
0: a uh, 650 650 is the dunbar lumber text line the smart alternative visit dunbar lumber on bridge street in ladner or arbutus in vancouver online at dunbarlumber.com rager text in. you guys are right myself and a lot of other people that i would see us uh, saying on social media had a feeling that the hurt from 2011 was dead the day the sedin's jerseys were retired i don't know if Many people would say dead, but certainly significantly lessened. There was a, a huge element of catharsis to those ceremonies, and I think there's something similar happening today and when they eventually are inducted as well. Speaking of the Sedines, as I mentioned, they spoke to the media earlier today uh, from their homes in Vancouver, just talking about the Hall of Fame announcement, what it means to them what it means to be going in with Roberto Luongo, and also naturally looking back at their career and the path from being drafted together by the Vancouver Canucks to now ultimately uh, getting the call to the Hall of Fame uh, just yesterday. And one of the things that stood out to me was Henrik Sedin talking about the early stages of their career and just how important it was that The Canucks as a whole, and he was specifically talking at the management level, but just in general, how important patience was for the success of Henrik and Daniel Sedin, because as we all remember... It was not a, a smash success right out of the gate for the second and third overall pick in the draft. And there were a lot of questions. Will they ever live up to the hype? What's going on with the Sedins? Z- 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 and of course, we all know, but they figured it out. But I thought it was really interesting, especially, of course- <laughs> You remember now- <sighs>
1: it being far politer than I do. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah, it
0: crossed the line on, on one or two occasions. But I think it's especially interesting now that they are members of the Canucks front office to hear what Henrik Sedin had to say about that process and about the importance- of patience. Here's Henrik Sedin uh, from earlier today.
2: Patience is number one, number one, especially with with the early year, years with Berkey and and Dave Nonis and and uh, Steve Tambolin and everyone was that was around them. Like we we didn't come in right away. Uh, with, like I think the way fans and media expect us to come in, but but they they really truly believed in us and they they were pretty honest. I think to the outside too, saying it was going to take a few years for us to to get to where we we need to be, and that that gave us time. I think we didn't have to rush anything. Uh, we knew ourselves uh, that it was going to take two or three summers. I mean, it's tough to to get to where we 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 went to from where we were in like one summer. That's really tough. But we we took it year by year, and they they gave us the the patience, and that's uh, that's something I think we took with from, from coaches as well, both coaches and management, where, where uh, if you want to change something, it's uh, it doesn't going to happen right away. And, and the best coaches and managers are the ones that give you time and, and, and believe in you.
0: Uh, That's Henrik Sedin earlier today talking about how important it was that members of the Canucks organization had that patience with him and Daniel Sedin. And I think in typical Sedin fashion, a little bit of a diplomatic (laughs) response there, because I'm not sure that, you know, everyone top to bottom was always, oh, yeah, we're we're thrilled just to be patient with the with the Sedin twins as they figure this out. But I think the overall point stands that, yeah, they needed a little bit of time to, you know, have those really successful summers where they where they put the work in on their skating, on their strength, all of that, to eventually become
1: the players that they became. And it's too bad we don't have behind-the-net data, though. Like, we don't have the underlying data, because by the time you get to their third season, so when they were 22-23, they're still playing 14 minutes a night, power play 2. You know, the game is different. There's two defender sets on the power play, right? Like, it's a totally different game in terms of deployment and tactics. And... I would suggest that they were held back for too long. Like, patience is a double-edged sword. Let's put it that way. And let's frame the conversation we're about to have about the overarching impact of patience with that in mind. Patience is a good thing. And I think it was necessary for the Twins, especially in their first couple of years. But I also would suggest strongly that it held them back by the time they were 23 and 24. You sort of look through those seasons and they're 40-point guys, right? Which is... Nothing to sniff at, right? That's like...
0: Playing in the roles they were playing in in particular. But I mean,
1: if you're a 40-point guy in the dead puck era, you're like the 70th or 80th top scoring forward in the NHL, right? So that means you're a credible second liner and they're still playing third line minutes. Um, they're still playing second second unit power play in an era where, you know, we know what came later from them on the power play, right? <laughs> like, we know that they were incredible uh, five-on-four producers. I, I would suggest that There was a moment where it turned and where the patients actually held the Twins back a little bit. Obviously, we know what happened after the lockout. They came back and they were immediate 60-point players and they kind of never looked back. And then they peaked again in their late 20s as back-to-back Art Ross winners. But, you know, I I do suspect looking back on it, looking back at playoff deployment, um, some of this stuff, I, I do think that there's a real argument to be made that the Twins, you know, benefited from the patience of the organization for a bit. And then we're probably held back by the patience of the organization. Well, and I, I think
0: that's what makes the idea of patience in an NHL context—not even just looking specifically at the Sedians—but it makes it a really interesting discussion because you know we talked about it uh, with the Colorado Avalanche. There were moments where Joe Sakic showed extraordinary patience and, and stuck to his guns because he thought he had the right process in place, and ultimately it pays off in a big way. But we've also seen. Here in Vancouver, I mean, I would bring up the example of Olia Levy, right? Were there moments earlier in that process where the Canucks could have got a better outcome from the team if they hadn't had as much patience with a top five draft pick? Yeah, probably. I can think of another high
1: draft pick who would have benefited Absolutely. from the club being far less patient.
0: Absolutely. We know those stories. So we know it can cut both ways. And the way I wanted to first, because I think, you know, listening to what Henrik had to say there, you can draw the parallel between specific players, um, on the Canucks right now, like a, a Niels Hoaglander pops to mind immediately. Maybe that's a situation where it would behoove the club to have a little bit of patience in in this situation.
1: Kuzmenko this upcoming season, uh, you know, we saw it with Vasily Podkolzin just this past year.
0: Yeah. E- even if Podkolzin takes a step back in a sophomore I'm, season, I was, right? was
1: going to bring that up too, but I didn't want to be the negative guy. So thanks for jumping on that grenade <laughs> for me, my my friend. No,
0: it's not negative to say that <laughs> if that
1: happens,
0: have yeah. a little bit of patience, Fine, right? And,
1: and here's also where. Like, Pod Colson could take a step back, but I've seen this guy work at practice. I've heard the stories about the work in the gym, about the level of preparation that he has off the ice. Like, I don't care if it's game 25 and Pod Colson has three points. I don't care at all. This kid's going to be really good. He might not be a high end top line player, but he's going to be really good because he has all of those character elements, all of that work ethic stuff. That you know he's going to figure it out. The twins had that too. Those are the types of people you should be patient with, right? You have to bring context to to your patience, or else you get stabbed by this the other end of the sword, as the Canucks did with yolevi who there were warning signs about his work ethic far before, or you know a player like a Jake Virtanen who just didn't show enough improvement into. Not the easy parts of the game, but, like, the learnable parts of the game. Things like picking pucks off the wall on on your backhand, right? Like, if you're not showing progress like that by year four, there's a far bigger problem, right? There's a far bigger problem. And you have to be able to adjust to that and act accordingly, right? Practically to improve your hockey.
0: Yeah, and as I said... This isn't just you know a former great who's going into the Hall of Fame talking about how he needed that patience to grow early in his career. That's interesting in its own right. Development coach now. He's a member
1: of the Canucks organization. Well, and and specifically in a development player development role, yeah.
0: And so I wanted to kind of spin and and maybe we can get back to some of the specific players where patience may or may not be appropriate uh, for the team right now. But I wanted to spin it also just in general. How important is the role of? patience in this Canucks off season and also how do they strike that balance between what we're talking about right the good sort of patience and the patience that can end up actually biting you and being counterproductive
1: well it's a really key question because last season last off season was really defined by a lack of it impatience impatience that's ex- that's the
0: if you had to choose one word to sum up the OEL deal right it was we can't wait a year to have all of this money wiped off so we got to do it right now
1: i'd go further back I'd say if you want to come up with one word that's characterized why this organization has gone from the team of Luongo, and Sedin, Sedin, to where they are today, it's a consistent lack of organizational patience that has caused them to flunk nearly every stress test thrown their way since, right? I mean, this is a team, and it's not just hockey operations, like, on an organizational level, right? They were losers coming out of the work stoppage, right? Like, when the, the... um, lockout happened and it wiped out half that season in 13-14 in they, w- they came out the other end severely weakened part of that was within their control part of it was outside of their control particularly because of cap recapture um, when the pandemic struck and the organization became a bottom 10 spender and then quickly changed course behaved like a big market team with an abundance of impatience again they failed that stress test they were one of the big losers one of the teams that set themselves up most poorly like, going into the pandemic, this looked like a team on the rise. We're now two wasted seasons on the other side, and the early part of what should have been a cup window in the early part of Hughes and Pedersen's 20s is gone now. Like, it's it's basically gone, and it's going to be really hard to, you know, contend on Pedersen's second contract. Ne- never mind his ELC. We, we're we not far removed from being like, will the Canucks comp- contend on Pedersen's ELC. And now it's like, will they be able to contend on his second contract? And I would wager that the answer is probably not if you're expecting them to be more than a wild card team that can maybe win around with a hot goalie. So, you know, impatience has been a, a fundamental issue for this organization and I think is a really interesting frame through which to view this offseason because there's a bunch of things where patience is going to be a virtue for them. And a few others where they need to be far more proactive. And and let me give you an example. Sure, Jason Dickinson. Jason Dickinson comes to mind first for me as a guy who requires patience, right? The buyout window will open on Friday, right? That's July 1st, Canada Day. And it will close on July 12th. Now, a few things to keep in mind about the buyout window to zoom out. The buyout window, no one, a buyout is almost never a first choice for a team. Because once you've bought out a contract, that is dead money. You can't trade it, you can't retain it, you can't in any way move it. It's just kind of there, and it's a sunk cost, and you've accepted it. It's always a last resort. It always should be a last resort. So as the buyout window unfolds, you know, don't expect a ton of action early. You might see a few, a few early ones. But for the most part, those will go later on in the process, after the draft, after teams have exhausted their options to, to creatively problem- Tried to find elsewhere. takers, all of that stuff, yeah. In Dickinson's case, a buyout of his contract is actually relatively favorable because the contract itself was backloaded. That structure actually, much like the Braden-Holpe buyout before it, uh, and the Vertanen buyout, although that was also subject to a one-thirds ratio, um, is more team-friendly than it otherwise would be. The Canucks would save $1.7 million dollars if, you, if they bought out Jason Dickinson this summer, they'd save over $2 million the next year, and it would come at the cost of a under $1 million dead cap hit for two years beyond that. The problem for Vancouver, I think, in navigating this is that $1.7 million in cap space this year is very good. $2.2 million in cap space this year is also, or next year, is also very good. But the $1 million hit that you then have on your books is seriously problematic because those are the seasons... Where, you know, even I, Mr. Debbie Downer, Mr. <laughs> like Dr. Doom, would tell you, hey, the Canucks really should have a chance to be pretty good those seasons. The value of that extra million in those years is far higher leverage than the value of 1.6 this upcoming or 1.7 this upcoming year, particularly because it's not really 1.7. One thing you have to do with these buyout deals is also factor in that the Canucks can reduce Dickinson's cap hit To one and a half million simply by burying him in the American League. So, if you don't exercise the buyout, you are not stuck with that money uh, over the tail end of the buyout. You you don't carve out the cap space now, but the difference, like the marginal value of of a Dickinson buyout versus burying him in the American League, it's five hundred fifty k. Well, five hundred fifty k in additional space is not worth clouding your books. In, you know, Thatcher Demko's well, that- last two years of Thatcher Demko's contract and, and the seasons in which Hughes and Petterson are 25 and 24 and should be at the absolute height of their power. That's the important part of the timeline, right? Is the yeah. two
0: years where the dead cap would be on the books are the last two years of Thatcher Demko's extremely team-friendly deal yep. when, again... I think no matter what your current evaluation of this team is, I think there's probably pretty much unanimous agreement that those two years are key competitive years for this team, or at least that should be the target to make them key competitive years, right? So if you're putting dead cap on the book in those years, you better have an extremely compelling reason in the present to do so, because Mm -hmm. that's going, as you said, the leverage of that could it even be?
1: Yeah, that's the question. Can you even come up with an extremely compelling reason? Because
0: for me, it would be, you'd have to have, there would have to be something so specific, and you needed just that extra little bit of cap space to execute it, but realistically- That extra 550K? The type of things that fall into that category, you know, that's like a major free agent sign or something, which I don't really see the team doing this summer. I don't think that would make sense in their competitive window, so- I think the Venn diagram of, oh, my gosh, we have to get it done right now and you know where the Canucks sit, I don't think there's anything in the middle that would justify buying out Jason Dickinson's contract this year. As you said, it's, it's realistically a $550,000 savings.
1: I think there's a far better chance that Jason Dickinson bounces back and is legitimately useful this season than that the Canucks find that that extra five hundred fifty k. in savings that, that makes a difference. Then there's that one golden
0: opportunity that yeah. they need it for. And that's the thing. So the reason Jason Dickinson buyout doesn't look super punitive like some buyouts do. I mean, partly it's because, partly it's the way it's structured, but he also only has two more years left at a relatively small number, right? At a 2.65. And it's certainly not a good contract. Obviously, that's why we're talking about it as a buyout. But this is also not a player who, you know, it's not as if he was on his way out of the NHL or anything when he got to Vancouver. He was a useful, quality contributor for the Dallas Stars. And... If you, first of all, if you bring him back, you can always explore a buyout next summer, right? Where now there's only one year left on the deal. So it's even less punitive to the Canucks to go down that road. And it's like, I don't know how good the chances are that he performs well enough in his second year here that he regains some value, but it's certainly not zero, right? Like it wouldn't be shocking to see him have a bounce back campaign there's a reason why the reaction to the jason dickinson deal initially was generally pretty positive he's a decent player he can be
1: i'd be far more surprised if he repeats a season as bad as he did than that he is at least somewhat better maybe he's maybe he's never gets back to the level that he was at in dallas but uh you know i would i would expect that this season is a one-off a unique challenge we sometimes see it happen we don't often see it happen it's a very bad sign that it happened at this age for dickinson and yet you know for me at some point, this club needs to take its medicine and marshal all its resources toward a, a couple of years in the future where you can actually meaningfully make a dent into competing credibly for something. And I just don't think a Dickinson buyout helps you get there.
0: And he doesn't have to rebound to the point where you know teams are blowing up your phone asking to acquire Jason Dickinson. Like that's no, not, no, no, That no. doesn't have to be what the bar is. But let's say he has he rebounds a bounce to an
1: everyday player who is like a good penalty killer. You can probably find another team's problem to
0: trade him. For. Yeah. Or let's say he plays better this year and then you go into next summer and you're willing to retain half of the salary and you can move him to another. Perfect, team. Right. Right. Then then it ends. You're not pushing the cap hit farther down the road. Yeah. Yep. You're retaining. But it ends in twenty three twenty four and you've got it off your books. That's not. I, I. I don't think that's an unthinkable scenario at all. But he rebounds to just retain that little bit of extra value.
1: No, and even even if he's an expiring in his last year, uh, you can use it for salary matching purposes and executing a trade, just like the Canucks did with Tim Schaller uh, in the Toffoli deal, right? So I mean, there's all sorts of ways to get value here. For me, a buyout should be the last course of action that the club takes. This club doesn't really like buying people out anyway, and this year in particular, I think the clear wise course is to hold Dickinson unless you can find a problem-for-problem problem hockey mm-hmm. trade that sort of suits you. Uh, a, a, um, is his name Warren Fogle? Yes. Warren Fogle out of Edmonton. Their cap hits very neatly match. I sort of wonder about something like that. Uh, if there's you know a distressed defenseman somewhere, something like that. Th- those are the sorts of things I would consider, but I, I think a buyout would be a mistake. A cate- Categorically, I think a, buying out Jason Dickinson this summer... Would be a mistake of impatience.
0: Yeah, I think there's too many chances down the road, or potential chances down the road, to do something else that that harms you less in the future to really make the buyout make sense. And just to your point about you know is there a distressed defenseman? I go back to uh, when Derek Clancy came aboard, and one of the you know early interviews he did as assistant general manager. Was talking about finding players that, for whatever reason, aren't having success with other teams, but you see something in them and you think, in this system, you can get a little bit more out of them, right? So maybe, Jason Dickinson, you find that player that the other team isn't happy with, they're not having success there, but this front office identifies, hey, if we get him in here, uh, we're going to get a little bit more value. That would be something that makes a lot of sense. For Jason Dickinson as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Lots of conversation in the uh, 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text message inbox, so keep your thoughts coming. Keep your Canucks off-season questions coming as well. We will continue uh, to talk about the Canucks off-season, the role of patience. what are the key critical things they need to accomplish in this off-season. Don't forget as well... Uh, to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please do leave us a five-star rating and review. More on the way. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet
1: 650. In this house, a star is born. Hughes down the boards, has to spin back to the corner, now works into the high slot, and shoots, he scores! Quinn Hughes in overtime! This is Quinn's house, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back
0: to the show, Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Strantz here with you. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery, being a champion takes foresight, build your company to win for years to come with fuel efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit AvenueMachinery.ca and uh, with all the news yesterday, Drantz, I mean, we really just dipped our toes into the Canucks off-season outlook, but... We're ready to dive in today, and we talked about it in the first segment, bouncing off an interesting Henrik Sedin quote on the importance of patience, the role of patience in this Canucks off season, and specifically as it relates to a Jason Dickinson buyout. And uh, you know, it doesn't happen all the time, but we're getting a lot of agreement in the six fifty six fifty Dunbar Lumber text line about Jason Dickinson. This one's from Leaf Hater Steve, who says, "I absolutely agree on Dickinson. If he plays closer to what we expected, then he could be a useful player." or an asset, and I think, you know, what it tells me is less than just about the agreement on Jason Dickinson is the appetite, at least among our listeners, but I think on the wider fan base as well, for just a little bit of patience, and a little bit of extra foresight, and I think that really sets up this Canucks offseason in an interesting way, because so often a team goes into the offseason, and they're kind of in one, they're closer or, you know, farther away from one of two poles, right? One is, you're a contender, And the way you evaluate the offseason is just how much better did you make your team, right? How much did you climb the ladder of the hierarchy of the NHL? And how much closer did you get to being a legit Stanley Cup contender? The other end is, hey, you're rebuilding. You know, how many future assets did did you add to your war chest? The Canucks, I think there's going to be – I don't think it's going to be as simple as either answering either of those questions. When we, you know, look back at the end of July or the middle of August and try to evaluate their offseason, they're in such a unique position – I think there's going to be some moves that make them better for next year and are really interesting. I think there's going to be some moves that represent more of that step back, and I think it's going to be a lot more complicated than just kind of saying, okay, here's how many wins above replacement they added this year, or here's how many draft picks they added this summer.
1: Unfortunately, the organization's in a point where what they really have to be protective of and carve out are the avenues to improve as opposed to
0: the actual improvement.
1: The actual improvement.
0: Have to, you have to lay the groundwork to do the improvement sometime down the
1: road. It's it's like there's a time to reap and a time to sow, and the Canucks have to sow here. This is a sowing off season. There needs to be cap space carved out. They need to position themselves to take quantum leaps forward in seasons to come. The time to, you know, reap, which they tried to do last off season, even though it wasn't sort of. The harvest wasn't complete yet, you know? Like, they would have so much flexibility if they simply hadn't continued to tie themselves up into knots and and back themselves further into the corner to mix my metaphors. With regards to this summer, right, you kind of have two options. The team is positioned right now to keep this core group together for one more year, right? This core group basically has an expiry date after next season after which some really tough decisions need to be made. You need to either pay a bunch of guys and gut your supporting cast or you need to make some really tough decisions at the top of the lineup. Like that's how that's how they're built. This this was a team built to win now and that window that was supposed to open and didn't kind of expires after next season. That's that's the whole logic. This goes back to to be honest, the the JT Miller trade, right? Once the club made that deal, they'd set themselves up to accelerate. They were adding a top six forward who, if he hit, would be a below market top six forward through the end of this upcoming season, through 2023. And that would dovetail nicely with uh, Pedersen's ELC and, and sort of the development of their young guys. And maybe the team could take a step forward. And it looked like it was going to work in in the fall of 2020 or the summer of 2020. And then it didn't. And the club sort of wasted the last two years. And now they're in this position where it actually takes a lot of work just to keep this group together. And for what? Right? That's the big that's the big question. What's the ceiling? What's the ceiling? Right. And and, you know, the ceilings kind of if everything breaks right, maybe they're the third best team in the Pacific. Probably not, because I think we all think Vegas and, and Edmonton at least are. Calgary will see. They may lose some pretty significant pieces, but I still think Calgary is more solid up and down the lineup, even without Gaudreau. Even if Gaudreau walks, I think they're going to probably be better positioned than the Canucks are. So for what? For what are you you sort of kicking the can down the road for? And that's sort of where this organization sees itself now. You've got very little in the way of cap flexibility going forward. You've got very little in the way of cost-controlled talent coming through the pipeline, although the Kuzmenko signing surely helps. You've got uh, a draft pick deficit that lasts through at least this year. And, you know, you're also not very good at the NHL level. And those are sort of like the four main core pillars. Now, you're not very good at the NHL level, but you have some really valuable assets there. Can you trade from that to shore up the other three... And then position yourself so that you have tons of avenue to imp- avenues to improve in a couple of years that take advantage of those last two years of, of Demco's contract. Like to me, that's the plan. That that that's the best way forward. But it does require some tough decisions being made this summer, and it requires a tremendous a tremendous amount of discipline for the next eighteen to twenty four months. The type of discipline that has not been characteristic of this organization for a decade. And and I think. One last thing to just throw onto this is that fans want to see wins, right? Fans want to see playoff home dates. But you're okay, I think, to give fans a reason to buy into the journey. And this is something that I think is underrated by teams as they tell the story of where they're going. Fans, If, if fans believe in your vision and your plan, you can sell them in going along with buying in on the ground floor for for a vision or a plan that will get there in time, so especially if you're delivering on what you promised, which to this point, management has done pre- a pretty good job of, right? We're going to go through uh college free agency and NCAA free agency. And even though they whiffed on an NCAA free agency, you know, they get Kuzmenko, they get Scott Young. They bolster that they department, bolster right? that department to, right? to do it better in the future. So, yeah. so there's been a sense of promise, deliver, promise, deliver to this point. And if that continues, I, I don't think it's going to require this group to make moves that make them solid on, like, better on paper. I think they'll be fine to, you know, hit a bunch, try and hit a bunch of singles and try and shore up sort of the fundamental positioning of the club going into this summer. And I think fans will understand that that's sort of what it's going to take. Because I think fans understand that Rutherford and Alvin have inherited a pretty significant mess, to be honest with you. Well, and the point
0: about promise and follow through, and just the goodwill that builds up when yeah. you do it all over again, we we see that play out among our listeners in the totally. text box every day, right? People text in about the newfound confidence they have in the direction of the Canucks, and you know, part of that surely comes down to you know the Boudreaux bump and all of that, and and Thatcher Demko playing extraordinarily well, and Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson in the second half of the season, obviously, but I do think a large part of that is just the kind of reaffirming nature of having somebody like Jim Rutherford or Patrick Alvin come out and say, we're going to do this because we think it will accomplish X, and then going out and doing it. And you just add that up, and you you're start to, starts to become a lot easier to get on board with different moves. And I think that skill, the kind of salesmanship aspect of it, is going to be really, really important for the Canucks this offseason because of what I'm describing, where their season is going to be inherently more difficult to evaluate. So what story do they tell about it, right? If they do choose to trade JT Miller, how are you able to describe why you made that decision and what it's going to allow you to do down the road to this market? I think that's going to be really vital.
1: Well, and, and you, but you can see part of, part of what, they're, what they've done from a messaging standpoint, in my opinion, is that they've given themselves wiggle room, right? So if they sign JT Miller to a team-friendly extension they'll be able to say the numbers worked miller wanted to be here he's too important to us we need to move forward with him if they have to trade him the numbers didn't work for where we're positioned as a club and both the 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 breadcrumbs right have been laid for both go in both either directions. direction <laughs> yeah so they've given themselves some some flexibility by you know being sort of ciphers in terms of their communication they've they've equivocated right like rutherford's come on these airwaves and he's equivocated. He's been like, we love the player. He's hard to replace. You know, he brings a ton to our room. But, you know, he's he's done the straight-up fiddler on the roof. Like, on the one hand, on the other hand. Like, he's literally done that. And as a result, I think he's carved himself some flexibility to tell either story, depending on where things end up falling.
0: Uh, with all of that said, kind of just a long 3,000-foot uh, uh, preamble on where the Canucks stand in the off season. You and... Harman Dial have a great piece up at The Athletic right now. It went up yesterday, but obviously overshadowed a little bit by the Hall of Fame announcements on what a perfect off season would look like from your perspective for the Vancouver Canucks. And a lot of it, you know, obviously the bullet points, Brock Besser's deal. We've talked at length about how to navigate that situation and the options and and what the
1: best, best case scenario <laughs> would look like for Brock Besser. This is the most fleshed out, like, working through all the scenarios yeah. uh version of it. So go check the athletic.com yeah, for that. Because uh, yeah, lots it's of the inside hockey there. stuff that's interesting to only me, but like I love it.
0: So but what I wanted to because I I believe it's ten kind of bullet points for what the Canucks sure. should try to accomplish. What I wanted to do is just kind of zero in on and maybe this has an extremely obvious answer and it's one that we've talked about a lot. What do you think is the most important thing? Singular thing for them to successfully Accomplished going into this
1: offseason. For me. It's the Besser deal.
0: Really more. So you put it above more the Miller than, situation.
1: More than Horvat Miller. Interesting. And, and here's the reason. The gap in value. Between. Trading Besser now. Or. Besser on a one year deal. At 7.5. And Besser as on a three year compromise deal. At a cap figure below 7. That's bigger to me than the gap in value between waiting on Miller beyond the you know to the deadline and right now. You know, I mean, I think Miller will have more value now, and he'll, he has a little bit less control than he will come come deadline season. Like by the deadline, I think your your his value really becomes dependent on his willingness to sign an extension with any team um, trading for him, uh, and I do think that that makes things more complicated. But the gap there, the gap in waiting for me, is less than the value that the organization could add by locking up Besser to a deal that's more palatable than the 1.75 and the, you know, sort of continuation of uncertainty that that brings to his entire circumstance. Like, for me, that's number one, because the, the best way, like, there's nothing else that the organization could do without a trade partner this summer that just significantly bolsters their own hand, right? All of a sudden, you've got, you know, especially if Besser bounces back next season, which I would expect, um, you know, all of a sudden you've got a guy who's uh, pretty consistent 30 goal 65 per 82 game point producer locked up to a contract that's, you know, maybe a little rich, but it's not bad um, versus this sort of qualifying offer situation. That's really murky, right? That's really murky and tough, tough to navigate and that no team is likely to want a big part of not to say the Besser has no trade value. But I think the Canucks would have to take back a similarly distressed asset, like a similar young player with an inconvenient qualifying offer situation, if they were to do that type of, type of deal today. And that's not ideal, considering how good a player Besser is. So, for me, that's the number one thing that they could do by themselves, without, without having to make a deal with a rival team, that would enhance their hand. And the, the Miller-Bo Horvat thing, to me, is really crucial from a from a big picture perspective, in terms of in terms of navigating what direction, like charting a future plan. Let's so so it, let me let me put it this way. Let okay. me put it this way. The organization's main task for me over the next two years is to graft as much value into the into the club as possible. Right, you need to win a couple trades. You need to uh, make sure to avail yourselves. Like you can't have a guy like Tyler Mott expire. You need draft picks coming back. You need to just like spend a couple years sewing as it were bringing value into the organization in every move you make and that's why the kuzmenko signing so big because it's value created out of nothing that's like the primary task they also need to position themselves in a way that makes sense for the future to like crest on a wave to like marshal their resources to all hit on at one time so that they actually build a contending team and the miller deal speaks to that and is sort of in the big picture an absolutely crucial decision to make one way or the other mm-hmm. because it completely alters everything else you have to do around it but the better task represents to me what is like the fundamental goal of the next 2 years which is adding value to the club and the best uh, coming up with a better compromise as opposed to a qualifying offer a non tender a, a trade. trade those are the, that to me is the bigger deal because it's the more essential thing that the club has to accomplish. it's an
0: interesting it's an interesting argument When you frame it in those terms, I think I would still go with the Miller-Horvat situation, just because if you look at all of the potential outcomes there, and let's just talk about J.T. Miller, right? The spectrum between, on one hand, a trade that hits for you, right? And, you know, you identify the right pieces you want back, you find a willing partner, you like the value you get back. And I'm not even talking about necessarily then those players develop down the road, but just in the moment it hits. You're like, wow, we really like this deal we trade from. The gap between that and then you can kind of go down the spectrum between, you know, a trade that you don't like as much to holding him going into the deadline and we'll see what happens to then signing him. Like the gap between the best and worst case scenario is huge to me. That the, the, the maybe it might be the biggest gap in terms of shaping the future outcomes. Whereas you're ultimately talking about one player with Brock Besser. Yeah. And I, I hear what you're saying, like not losing Brock Besser because you're non-tender him. That's a disaster. I I completely agree with you, but it's just, if you, you know, if you decide to sign JT Miller and it doesn't work out the gap between that outcome and the potential rewards you could reap on a trade, like that's just such a huge, you know, years defining situation for the team.
1: Sure. But if you're never going to sign, you know, uh, Eight times, what, $64 million deal, for example. Like, if that's not even on the table, and the only way you keep him is if it's a team-friendly extension, well, Miller's really good. You know, like, the success of a JT Miller trade requires, and in my opinion, it's not even necessarily about what you get back. As much as it's about clearing the cap space and, and using it really well. yeah, And like, not
0: committing to the the deal that like, you were just Ideally, you get both.
1: Out. Ideally, you both use the cap space really well and bring in at least one or two futures that hit for you in a couple of years. Ideally. But, you know, it's sort of the success or failure of that trade will be contingent on three or four other things going your way or three or four other smart things that you can do. Uh, whereas if you keep Miller, you still have a really good player. And if you keep him at a cap hit that you can live with, You know, I don't see that as a huge downside. Let let me put it that way. I see it as the wrong move. I want to be clear here. I see it as the wrong move if the goal is to win a Stanley Cup. But from the adding value perspective, JT Miller on a relatively team-friendly contract, like JT Miller at six times eight million, I don't think is a disaster for this club by any means. I think you've still kept value in your organization. There's still a really good player on your books. And yeah, you have to be careful about timing sort of it all out and what and what you do around him to support this team successfully but i don't see that as a move that all of a sudden causes the team to have less in terms of weaponry to use mm-hmm. to change directions should they should uh should they decide to so much as it makes them less flexible to do so and and that to me is a far lesser cost than the better than Besser on a one-time 7-5 where all of a sudden you're just in this situation again next year and he has very little trade value in the intervening months.
0: I think my concern just comes down to an inherent skepticism that there's going to be a truly team-friendly Miller deal possible. Because I just, you know, the one I keep coming back to when I turn this over and over in my head again off air is, like, what's the argument? What argument would you present to JT Miller for taking less than the Tomáš Hurdle extension? Yeah, no, it's you hard. know what I mean. So what? It's hard. And if you can't get well, below that number, are you? Is there? A, did I present less? No, 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 no. But like I
1: presented the Tomas hurdle. But if but is that
0: going to be? T- would you call that team friendly?
1: I mean, I, I think I yeah, fair enough. You know but, what I mean? That's but I mean the the it's not about it's not about how you sell it so much as it's about this is what we're willing to do, and if that doesn't work, you're dealt, right? Like the the logic of signing Miller requires that it be team friendly, not a market value contract. And if that's not going to work for Miller's camp, then the answer is very clear. And I think that matches what Rutherford has said. I think that matches any cogent analysis of the situation. Like, I think the idea of the big money Miller contract, you know, now look, maybe the team does it. And that would be a that would be a mistake. That well there's always error, that that's but,
0: the thing. There's always the chance in these types of high stakes negotiations that the team blinks. Yeah. Right? I don't just mean the Canucks. I mean any NHL team in this situation. There's a reason we see big money deals handed out over and over totally. again because teams get to the threshold and it's great to say, Oh, we're gonna draw the line at six years well, and it's, but then you're staring at the
1: reality of it and you're just like, Ah, oh, okay, we'll go seven. And it's scary. If you value Miller as a ninety point true center, like good luck. You know, there there's five of them in the league. Like good luck replacing that. Uh, if you value Miller, however, as a you know top of the lineup forward who might be better served on the wing, uh, you know I think it's a very different type of decision that the club faces, and obviously that's that's a high stakes, high interest decision for this market. We'll talk about it again tomorrow, probably on Friday. <laughs> what? Really, you yeah. think so? I think next week <laughs> you think too. So? Yeah, I think we'll do it. But but you know I do think that you know within the context of. You have a a, a sort of pole that's as far as you'll go in terms of a Miller deal, or or there's a trade. All of a sudden, the gap in decisions narrows significantly, and the gap between the better thing widens.
0: I agree with you if you stick to your guns, if yeah. you stick to that line you draw in the sand well, you on better. JT Miller, yeah, absolutely. Then it. yes, it's just all the the thought of a team sticking to their guns. It doesn't always happen, so it always uh, makes we, me a and little we have seen it a
1: lot of late. Yeah. in this market to
0: bet on that always makes me. Uh, a little nervous. One final thought here from the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line uh that says, I disagree with Trance. If you don't do anything now, you risk losing Miller at the deadline. Uh for at best a poor return since teams know that this is your last chance to move him. Oh, I did want to read you this one as well, man. No, but so long as there's uh, still interest, there's still value. Because uh you were saying you had the you know the most deep dive yet into the machinations of the Besser situation. You said it's only interesting to you. Uh, and JFid texted in, that's not true, Drancer. It's interesting to many more people than you. Thank you.
1: <laughs> so there you You're go. You're welcome, man. There welcome. you go. Yep.
0: End on a positive note today. Love it. Uh More Canucks talk coming up on the People Show with Nazar and Randeep Janet. You've got it on the Home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.